Hello, I'm Michael Barr. I'm Evan Novi Williams. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. This week, we hear from the CEO of the Liverpool Football Club, Peter Moore. From the perspective of what our ownership, I think, is different. A, a patient approach, getting the right people, getting quality, investing every penny that the club makes back onto the field of play. There's no stealing away of profits. There is no not engaging with the fans and understanding what the fans need. We'll have more of our interview with Liverpool CEO Peter Moore in a few minutes. But first, let's look at some of the top stories of the week. And let's start with the Echo Fox sale, gentlemen. Yeah, big deal in esports. Uh, this is this has been a saga that's gone on for a while. The, the Echo Fox franchise, most people know it as Rick Fox's franchise, uh, a couple months ago came out that there was a minority owner who had said some uh, some inappropriate uh, racist remarks to to a member of the of the Echo Fox family. Uh, Rick was upset about that. Riot told him, you know, you have 60 days to find a buyer for at least that stake, uh, the stake that that minority owner had. Um, they got a number of extensions, you know, turned into a sale of the entire thing. Uh, and the buyer is, you know, someone who's familiar in the traditional sports world. It's Cronky Sports and Entertainment. Uh, that's, you know, the Stan Kroenke who owns the L.A. Rams. He owns the Denver Nuggets. He owns the Colorado Avalanche. A big-time owner. An, another big traditional sports name moving into esports. For today's topic and our today's guest, you left off Kroenke's EPL holdings. Mm, you're right. Uh, Arsenal, Arsenal as well. Arsenal, yes. He owns Arsenal. Not a surprise. We know that Josh Kroenke, Stan's son, mm-hmm. uh, shepherds the esports franchises and the fact that he would suck this up. Not surprising. Do you think because of the nature of the sale, Eben, that this is a, a deflated price? Or, I mean, give, when you give, when you know you have to sell, when there is a timeline, generally buyers are out there looking for deals. Yeah, it's an interesting question because, for one, uh, Equifax financially, from what I understand, was not doing all that well, right? So, so, the, so it's a, it's a, it's a group of teams. Um, they were losing a lot of money just in their day-to-day operations. Um, and if they had not agreed to a deal earlier this week, Riot would have taken over the LCS slot, right? Which is the – think about it for folks who don't understand. Echo Fox has a number of different teams that compete in different games, but they have one major asset, and it is a slot in the franchise League of Legends League. Um, and that's, I mean, the $30 million that the Kroenke Group are paying, they're paying for that slot. You know, the rest of the thing may even be negative on the balance sheet. What they want is that slot. Um, so, you know, they have one major asset, and they were going to lose that asset entirely if they didn't get this deal done. So, yeah, I would imagine that if you were Cronky or any of the other bidders, you thought, listen, if Rick wants to get this deal done before he loses control of the entire sale process as a whole. So maybe we can get that at a, at a, at a cheaper discount and before we move than on, it would have been. I would say what interests me most, and you're the man to answer the question, is that this sort of gives me a valuation of where these teams are and where they were. So what kind of appreciation have we Yeah, seen? so that's a good point. So these League of Legends slots, they sold for 10 or $13 million two years ago when they first created this franchise league. Um, now, you know, this is the second or third even time we've seen one of these slots sell in the past couple months. $30 million seems to be the price for them. Uh, so three times or, or a little bit less than that, that's not a bad uh, valuation increase. Let's move on to uh, allegations of NBA tampering. Yeah, this is what I have to chuckle at. Now, apparently the <laughs> owners are taking it very seriously. There's some heated debate at the last Board of Governors meeting. But, I mean, bar. We've had guys signing contracts one minute after midnight. 
everybody knows that teams have been in touch with players before they're supposed to. These deals are worked out long in advance. That players are talking to each other. And sometimes we know about it even before. Yeah, exactly. You know. the, the one part that I would say to the NBA, and I have said this to some officials over there privately, which I didn't get at the time, Glenn Taylor, and I like Glenn Taylor, perfectly nice guy, owner of the Minnesota Timberwolves. He was part of that illegal Joe Smith contract years ago. He signed him to those illegal contracts that David Stern termed it, and excuse me if I'm not using the exact verbiage, but it was something like the widest ranging fraud in NBA history. And then after that, they elected the guy chairman of the Board of Governors. I never understood how, how an owner could be a participant in the widest ranging fraud in league history. I know he you know, sat out and served his punishment, but then sort of be honored by the rest of the owners as the chairman of the Board of Governors. That just never made sense to me. And I think it's one of the reasons why this kind of stuff happens. Well, you're doing a lousy job of chuckling because your nostrils are flaring as you're telling this. I, and no, I no, get what I, you're saying. I have absolutely no anger whatsoever. It just put, it just points out like all of a sudden now there's going to be this crackdown. Well, Adam Silver said that. What was it uh, during the meeting? Yeah, uh, yeah said, owners yeah. meetings in Las Vegas yeah. a, a couple weeks ago. Um, my, I mean, what I would say about it, that it, I think it's silly that the NBA has these rules that they are choosing. Not everyone yeah, knows they're not enforcing. Get rid of them. But I would, the NBA has never been more popular. relevant Everybody, or popular than the right intrigue now. that this lends on in a Twitter social world is good. The start of free agency, though, that those three or four days, kind of right after the start, yeah, where you know we had big about, signings Evan. and this, then Kawhi this, waiting, yeah, I thought the, that was the, tremendously this about, compelling. This is about the owners sort of losing control of the process and the players Absolutely. deciding what what's going on. But that, you're still. The fact that the league is popular puts money in your pocket yes. in the way that it matters, right? Your franchise is worth more because the NBA is bigger part of the, the cultural fabric of the country. And I, I would cultural hope that Billy, fabric of the country. I would hope that the billionaire owners, you know, the ones of smaller teams would I'm understand. I'm calling that. overstatement on Novi Williams, but all right. <laughs> uh, let's let's move on. Hey, how about those Dodgers? A hundred million dollars for renovations to their stadium. Have you been to Dodger Stadium? Well, yeah, and that and that's old school. I mean, it needs renovations. Well, it's just sort of the upgrades, yeah. But it's the third oldest in the still, league. Yeah. Still, to me, and I also like San Francisco, but still no more pleasant place to see a ball game. I mean, if you can get out of there parking-wise. I hope that's what they put some of the money to. Well, I think it's more about just beautification. There's going to be like a one grand entrance now to Dodger Stadium. For the first time, you're going to be able to walk around the stadium, which you couldn't do before. Of course, there will be some amenities. There'll be... Sort of that what the uh, millennials are looking for, family section and bar section, things like that. Beer garden. Yeah, and with everything that is opened up, it's just a new opportunity to sell. So, uh -oh. yeah, not just a renovation, but, you know, let, let's see which companies, which brands are looking to attach themselves to the different parts of this iconic ballpark. Yeah, we've talked a bit about, you know, how the, the, the American – stadium model is so much more than just a stadium, right? They're putting in a, a music venue in the outfield, right? So so they can do things alongside or right after baseball games. And just to preview our conversation with Peter Moore coming up, you know, he discusses how, you know, a lot of English soccer stadiums are just right in the middle of the neighborhood and there's no like room Lambeau. around it to yes, build. Like the Dodgers have a benefit of, of having some room around their stadium and they're going to spend a couple hundred million dollars just, to, just to, to maximize the profit they can make off it. Remember the old show Home Run Derby? From 1960, sure. The stadium what that out? they used, <laughs> two away, two up, <laughs> way back. Yeah. I used to love Mark Scott, it, but that stadium is was supposed to be a twin because 
they were owned by the same club and the same gentleman is a twin to what Dodger Stadium relatively is now, quite frankly. So, yes, the renovations would be important. Why? Little known trivia. Look at that. Wow. (laughs) Added value, Michael Barr. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Ovaltine brought to you by. It's an old TV show, so I got some value. Yeah, exactly. Now let's get to this week's interview with Peter Moore, the CEO of the Liverpool Football Club. Peter, thank you for coming in. And you brought friends and, most importantly, what, a Champions League trophy. Did you trophy. see that thing? The Champions I'm League trophy. I'm talking about it. What do you mean? Did I see it? I'm talking about it, Bar. Oh, my God. This thing is beautiful. Look at that. How many people con- congregate around this thing? How many people know what it is, first of all? Uh, the moment we got out of the uh, out of the SUV that brought us here, uh, somebody jumped right within a second and saw that it was the Champions League trophy and <laughs> asked. And we made the decision as we come in here, because uh, I know this is radio and you can't see it, but we thought we'll bring it in in a pilgrimage and a homage to everybody that works at Bloomberg and comes through here. So it's great to bring this Wonderful branding, right? Brand extension here in the U.S. But you're also playing in the U.S. Yeah, we play at Yankee Stadium tonight, uh, and that's the culmination of what is the ninth day of the tour now. We arrived in South Bend, Indiana, Notre Dame campus, and uh, played uh, Borussia Dortmund there, uh, the iconic and fabled Notre Dame Stadium. Just think about this for a minute. Liverpool Football Club facing Borussia Dortmund at Notre Dame Stadium. How long, 10, 15 years ago, who was thinking this is taking place? First ever game at that stadium. Yeah. Right? First ever game, and even more importantly, first ever international flight to come into South Bend, Indiana, International Airport. Wow. Never actually had for, yeah, for an international team. flight. Right. Uh, the runway was just long enough for our 747 put down, and we actually loved our time in South Bend. But you also want to leave an imprint in the United States. Now, playing games, and all leagues are doing this, and markets they are hoping to reap rewards from, it's not enough just to go. You can't just say, okay, we're here, we play a game enough. What happens next? And what next, I mean one, three, five years to really plant the flag and get new customers here. Well, it's a few things. I mean, this is our second year in a row. We've been here actually in New York last year, played at, uh, at MetLife and uh, played down in Charlotte. And then out at the big house where we had 101,000 for a friendly game against Manchester United. Um, our fan engagement strategy is pretty simple. As long as we can put boots on the ground and as often as we can put boots on the ground to thank our fans, to engage with our fans. We don't just come here and play. Throughout the day, there are community events. We have both our men's team and our women's team uh, here in New York City. They, the women have, have traveled with the men. They've been on tour with the men. Do they get and- treated the exact same way? They play football the same as the men do. Do they travel the same way? They first travel time? in the same way. They Some travel don't. the same That's plane. That's important these days. And uh, they came in uh, into South Bend on 747 in business class seats. And uh, they've had a great time. And they have been uh, traveling this morning from Boston in their uh, red, what we call Ground Force 2 uh, bus that is uh, clearly emblazoned Liverpool Football Club women. And uh, they'll be here this afternoon doing community events and attending the game and flying back with the men tonight uh, back into Manchester. How, how many U.S. fans does Liverpool have? Roughly? It's a great question. Uh, if we look at our social engagement metrics of the last month, it's now in the millions that engage with us through Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Snapchat feeds. Um, but more importantly, I think we look at our global fan base and we look at who follows Liverpool. Repucom Nielsen about three years ago, uh, did a research, independent research on their behalf. 771 million people follow Liverpool. And by say follow, wake up in the morning, have a look at their phone, see other scores, all the way to traveling to Anfield and making that pilgrimage uh, to the stadium to watch Liverpool play. And we're the most certainly socially engaged team in the English Premier League, which is the biggest sports league in the world. Um, and by doing things like we're doing here in the United States, we continue to build that fan engagement. 
Equally important is playing the games. Every night we're doing something with the fans locally. We're in the House of Blues in Boston, 3,000 people there on Saturday night, engaging with our legends who are traveling with us with the Champions League trophy. And we also bring music acts that embody the spirit of Liverpool, that sing about Liverpool Football Club, but equally importantly, sing about the city of Liverpool. So it comes together as this massive tour with football as the platform, but more, it's it's not missionary work because we've got a lot of fans already, but it really is about engaging our fans. Absent being from Liverpool, if you look around the world, what is it that would make somebody say, I'm going to root for Liverpool? I think you would look at the Liverpool Football Club brand, and I'm sometimes leery to use the word brand, but if you know football, you know our success on the pitch, 18 league championships, uh, the six European Cups slash Champions League. But more than that, Anfield Stadium, Bill Shankly, the man who built it and took the club out of the second division, the, the Vince Lombardi, if you will, of, of English football. You'll never walk alone. The iconic Anfield atmosphere that has won us so many games from the stands. The COP, K-O-P, which is the huge terracing that sits behind the goal. We have tragedy that follows the club as well that deepens the passion and the relationship that the fans have. The city of Liverpool, so unique, seafaring city, hundreds of years old, socialist in its roots and at times and being born and bred in liverpool as i am at times it's all we had was our football team our, our red football team not the blue football team we also have another football team in liverpool um and, and that all comes together in this magnificent soup that is liverpool football club and when we won this trophy in madrid on june 1st by beating tottenham hotspurs 2-0 the reverberations around the world of the tens, if not hundreds of millions of people that were watching it, but certainly tens of millions of people wearing a red shirt. We've captured that on video. And it Rwanda, out of Mongolia, Uganda, uh, Bangkok, throughout the world, our official supporters clubs, that moment of euphoria when the second goal goes in with three minutes to go and you know you've got it then. Um, I think that encapsulated it. We flew back that next morning to Liverpool three quarters of a million people on the streets of Liverpool just to get a glimpse of that trophy. We're talking with Liverpool uh, Football Club CEO Peter Moore. And obviously you guys had an advantage of being global before the U.S. caught on, hey, maybe we should go global. Have you had any of the the NBA or the NFL or, or MLB come to you guys uh, asking you, well, what would be the best model for this particular sport? Well, of course, we're owned by Fenway Sports Group, who are also on the Boston Red Sox. And I think that the collaboration, certainly, uh, between the two entities, the learnings of the two entities. We've, for example, just started to, we've invested in our stadium to put on music concerts to actually enhance our revenue streams, but also to make our stadium more usable throughout the year. As it currently stands, a football stadium, it's maybe 30 times a year. Yeah, Green Bay now hosts bar mitzvahs, and like you said, Weddings. you have to diversify the revenue stream. Why not? It's it's one yeah. of your nice things Fenway you Park does a brilliant job. Yeah, with festivals rock in the winter. Absolutely. Festivals are, you know, ski jumps in the winter. Ski jumping, so, right. so the ability for us to learn from each other, I think, but in answer to your question as well, what we learned a little bit from from ownership is the use of data analytics, sports science that the Red Sox are famed for, and of course the concept of, of money ball, if you will, but more important, the use of data to identify players. We do exactly the same thing, and I like to think we're the most um, forward-focused club in football right now that l utilizes actual science to supplement and complement its scouting to identify players that fit the club. How, how prevalent is that in European soccer right now. We're at a point with Major League Baseball where I think the general consensus is that teams kind of think alike because a lot of them are on the same level of, of data usage. 
is the is the Premier League like that, or are you? I think it's you catching up. Kind of I like to think we're well ahead, and, and yeah. you know we've got uh, a, a young man um, who's our head of, of sports science that that looks at data exclusively, and actually probably doesn't actually watch the game, <laughs> reads the data from the game. And there's a a pretty famous interview that was in the New York Times recently where. This man's name is Ian Graham and, and sat with Jurgen Klopp, our, our manager, a German who also uses data uh, and went through Jurgen's final season game by game for the previous club he managed, which coincidentally was Borussia Dortmund. And mm. Jurgen said, well, you must have watched every game. And Ian said, I actually don't watch the games. I analyze and read the data streams that come out. And that's how we can feel for a player and whether he fits our needs. So, so whilst they're still scouting and you look at a player, it's supplemented with data that supports your, your vindication about this player. Our guest this week is Peter Moore, the CEO of Liverpool Football Club. Peter, we talked about baseball before. Yeah. However, we have seen many American owners make their way across the pond for investment in EPL teams. And then they are sent backpacking with their tail between <laughs> their legs. Why is John Henry having success? What are the mistakes that others have made? John, actually, John, Tom, Werner, Mike Gordon, the, the core, you know, principal owners of, of Fenway Sports Group. I, I think it's a number. And of LeBron, things. of course, let's be LeBron and LeBron's James. Got, he's, I'm sure he shows up every now. Yeah, and then. he's got a minority ownership, and we appreciate when LeBron shows up. We actually appreciate when he wears our gear as well. Which <laughs> I, bet, I bet, I uh, bet. But from the perspective of what our ownership, I think, is different. A, a patient approach getting the right people, getting quality, investing every penny that the club makes back onto the field of play. Um, there's no stealing away of profits. There is no not engaging with the fans and understanding what the fans need. Uh, we have been uh, not shy about investing enormous amounts of money in key players, our goalkeeper and our centre-back in particular, that have made the difference in our football team over the last couple of years. And I think as well, uh, what, what John does well is he applies. We talked about this. He applies best practices from global sports here at the Red Sox. We all remember what the Red Sox were before own, current ownership came in, and it was 86 years of futility. And, and what they did is, is, I think, provided a structure, certainly provided capital to get the right players at the right time and, and put chemistry around, found the right guy in Terry Francona at that time, and I think we found the right guy in Jurgen Klopp. And if you remember, that team was the Cowboys and there was chemistry in that locker room. But we have an amazing chemistry within our team. And Jurgen does that absolutely brilliantly. And ownership lets him get on with it. I'm curious, do they take emotion out of things? As coaches, as managers, you can get attached to players. But the Red Sox, during their drive of success, have taken this approach of, well, if you reach a certain age, we don't, not that we don't want you, but we're not giving you long-term. They realize that the analytics have taken over and they look at the arc of careers and really the numbers do dictate. There's no room for much emotion. I think that's true. And, and, you know, we've got a great example, if you will, of a player that we got on what's known as a free transfer from Manchester City, James Milner, that has actually improved in age. He's now entering close to his 34th year and and you look at James and you look at players of uh, any other player that have been, if you will, given away by a team as surplus to requirements. Um, but what we do at Liverpool is look at the player. We psychometrically look at the player, look at the player that is influencing the dressing room in the locker room. And James certainly does that. Look, this is not the, you know, the, the, the baseball element or, or what Bill Belichick has done for 15 years with the Patriots, which is managing salary caps and, 
as a Patriots fan, you know, dumping your favorite player just to make room under the cap. Um, this is about a, a little bit more sophisticated. What is the chemistry? Who are the players, what we call the shop stewards in football, that will manage that dressing room, our captain? And there's probably four or five players who could be captains. All that comes together in a team, if you've watched us play, that pulls for each other. And not every team in our league or in European football can say that. There's division in the locker room. There's superstars who feel that they are too good for the team. None of that exists at Liverpool. There's football also Club. division in the ranks of ownership. Edmund, I'm going to let you take it because I think you probably know where I'm headed in terms of big market, small market, big revenue, small revenue. Same questions we have here, yeah, but exactly. they're not easy answers. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious. There, there's You guys, the EPL d- divides up revenue in a very different way yep. than I think American sports fans are used to. Uh, two-part question, but for starters, can you just kind of break it down for an American who doesn't really understand our, our listeners? It, they don't understand the way the EPL breaks down their revenue. How, how does it get shared, the, the, the billions of dollars that the EPL makes each year? So, so the, the EPL brings in the media revenues from around the globe. We have domestic media, which is typically Sky Sports and BT, and then a multitude of global uh, broadcasters and, and more increasingly, OTT providers are coming in looking at innovative ways. That all goes into a media pot, and that is predetermined as regards from top of the league to bottom of the league. The parity levels of this uh, are it's the most uh, equitable league potentially in the world of how the money is distributed. And what that does, is, and it's a lot of money, but what that does is allows parity on the field of play as well. So you can be 15th in the Premier League and still through the media uh, revenue that comes in, be making more money than the top team in Portugal, for Mm -hmm. example. And we know what we're going to make. On top of that, there are uh, facilities fees. So if you're a popular football club like Liverpool, you get extra money when your your game is broadcast live. And as a result of that, and, you know, publicly published, we got the most money, even though we didn't win the league, <laughs> we got the most money uh, from the Premier League in this past season here. And, and it's considerable. And, and what is the what is the, the bucket of revenue that you guys keep to yourself? If, if I, here in the U.S., if I go on the Cowboys website and I buy a Cowboys uniform, that money doesn't go to the Cowboys. That gets split up among we all the NFL We have a completely different teams. model. It's, it's a different system yeah. in, in England. We own our own rights. Yeah. Uh, we drive our own retail. Uh, we drive our own global e-commerce, and we're investing heavily in, in building that up. We have hundreds of millions of fans who want to get a T-shirt or a cap or, or a replica shirt, and we do that ourselves uh, in conjunction with our manufacturing partner, New Balance. And, Peter, we've talked a bit about kind of the globalization of soccer right now. I'm curious how you balance the Liverpool fan, your fans in England who are, you know, the, the majority of the people that show up every Saturday and scream for, for 90 minutes, uh, how you balance kind of catering to them versus we're here in America right now, catering to your, you know, your fans in America or in China or in India, et cetera. How do you kind of keep those two, yeah, those two well, groups you, in, in you, favor? You, you obviously do both. I mean, and, and I coined a phrase when I arrived at the club a couple of years ago, we have this unbelievable local heart that's powered by a global pulse. And so getting that balance right is exactly what we need to do. Um, the, the attraction of Liverpool Football Club, the pilgrimages that people make to Anfield from all around the globe is to soak in that 90 minutes of atmosphere, the songs, the flags, the, the, the almost vitriolic atmosphere when the, the, the fans in the stadium know that the team needs them if they're struggling to get a goal or they need to fight back from a goal down. If you watched our uh, what is now historic uh, 
Champions League semi-final second leg when we are 3-0 down going into the second leg against arguably the best club team in the world, um, the team will tell you that that atmosphere of those fans uh, helped uh, diminish the impact that a Messi, a Coutinho, a Suarez, a PK had on that game. And I was there, and I will never forget that as anybody who was there, we we had to win by 4-0 hmm. or, or four clear goals. And we did against the world's greatest team. And you can point to the crowd for being a contributing factor in that. But balancing that is critical. We need that atmosphere to drive the team. That's why people fly from all over the world to come to Anfield to watch Liverpool is to absorb that atmosphere. Um, so local ticket member sales that um, uh, make sure that our locals are advantaged as best we possibly can. If you live in a particular postcode that begins with an L for Liverpool, you've got a, a, a member sale that's private. So we're continuing to focus on giving back everything we can to our local fans so that they've got the best opportunity to be in the stadium. But challenge we have right now, the demand for our tickets far outstrips the supply that we have at Amsterdam. Tough problem. Make a bigger stadium. Yeah, Yeah, well, there you go. You have the opportunity. It's something we're looking at here. Yeah, I mean, we are. We, we, we're, uh, as we did with our new main stand, which is four years old now, we're going to take our time. Um, if you're familiar with Anfield, it's unlike an American stadium. It sits right in a residential area, so it's not just a question as you might be able to do out here with like the old Meadowlands where I've just like build out. It's uh, something that has to be done in a very measured way and, and, and in conjunction with the local residents. Only a guy who lived in the U.S. for a long time is like, yeah, you know, like the Meadowlands. <laughs> yeah. You see that thing no, they're going I'm, up now? You see this indoor mall they have coming up? Yeah, unbelievable. But you have the land here. Yep. The American stadium model is to build in the outskirts, so you have the <laughs> land. The the British stadium model, the English stadium model, was to build the stadium in the late 1800s right in the middle of the town so people, the working class man, basically, could walk to the stadium. We had a, a guys who own uh, a prominent European soccer team, I won't name it, in the, in the uh, office a couple of years ago, and they were asking us, how do we grow our brand here in the U.S.? And I said, the first thing you do, get your star player on the cover of FIFA. You used to run EA Sports before you took this job at Liverpool. You're kind of uniquely suited to to think about what FIFA has done impact-wise for clubs. How important is that video game globally in helping a club like Liverpool add more fans, give its current fans kind of an interaction with the club when they can't come to Anfield for games every Saturday? Well, it's it's a great point, and, it, and it's a good opportunity for me to welcome back EA Sports to the, <laughs> the Liverpool brand, and we've just announced a deal uh, with Electronic Arts through EA Sports to be part of the FIFA family uh, again. Um, when I was president of EA Sports and, 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 and more recently chief operating officer at EA, that's exactly what we looked at with FIFA is building out a game that used to be, here's a game you buy, you play it, and you buy it again the following year. It became a service model uh, very quickly, maybe six, seven years ago, with a thing called Ultimate Team. Hmm. And being to do play Ultimate Team well, you needed to understand who the players were. You needed to understand the history of the team. You needed to understand who the best players were for the kind of digital points that you had. Liverpool was important because we identified clubs that had tremendous engagement. And what would happen when you played FIFA, first thing you kind of do is identify who's your favorite club. And so that allowed us at EA to start building heat maps of where followings of engagement were and then target those with that team. Um, it culminated with uh, Jordan Henderson, our captain, who, who proudly raised that cup that sat next to me just a few weeks ago, being on the cover of a FIFA game three years ago. And he was alongside Messi. And, and, you know, I was thinking the other night how much kind of abuse we at EA got for putting Jordan Henderson 
on the same cover as Lionel Messi. Well, fast forward to uh, June 1st uh, in the evening, late evening in Madrid, when Jordan Henderson raises that cup and Lionel Messi is sat at home watching it on television, Ouch. I assume. Ouch. Yeah. So, so I think there's... Tears in Barcelona. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's vindication for the belief we had in Jordan, uh, great ma- uh, captain for our football club. But, but you bet, FIFA, ha- in particular in the United States, uh, and in particular with the increase in the quality of the broadcast of the Premier League in the United States, educated young American boys primarily into what soccer was all about. And, and the Premier League benefited enormously. But now you need to make some money off that. You mentioned OTT earlier. And what this yeah. is all about is direct-to-consumer. Teams are taking everything direct-to-consumer as well as our athletes. Mo Salah can probably go ma- make himself a ton of money direct to his personal fans as well as yeah. Liverpool fans. You mentioned Messi. Brings me to Barcelona. We got an email today, as a matter of fact, Mr. Novi Williams, that uh, their revenue this year was $1.1 billion. They were the first club to, to break a billion. Where is the revenue going for Liverpool? When do we see Liverpool number one in that all-important me- all well, metric? Clubs like Barcelona have a different business model. The rest, they're, they're primarily shareholder-owned. Uh, they have a tremendous revenue stream to their credit as well. Their success on the pitch over the last decade, you can link that almost directly to Messi at sure. times. and. Iniesta and Xavi, but is is they're, they're reaping the benefit of that. I think we're at the front end of that. Um, you know, we've opened a sales office in the last few years in London. Our commercial sponsors are becoming more sophisticated. They're more global, and more importantly, they're not just writing us checks. They're helping us activate our football club on a global basis, whether it's Standard Chartered, who we wear on the front of our shirts, Western Union on our sleeves, New Balance. You know, there's there's American linkages to a lot of this. Is that you asking them to do that, or do they look for increased ROI for those sponsor dollars? When we sit down together, and these are massive deals, we don't just say how much. We say how will you benefit, let's let's say Standard Chartered, uh, who are about to be in the, when this current deal, there'll be 13 years on, on our shirt. How do we, Liverpool Football Club, help you drive your brand around the world through the utilization of our intellectual property and our players? And how do you, Standard Chartered, through your values, help drive Liverpool Football Club, particularly in Asia, where they're based? Same with New Balance, same with Western Union, more recently AXA, one of the world's biggest global insurance companies, who share the same values on health and fitness and activity with young people as do we. How do we share our values together as two global entities and create a rising tide that lifts both boats? Peter Moore, this is simply not enough time. We're going to have to have you back one of these days. It's just, Come over we, to Liverpool. We, we would love to. Oh, we, we could go for a long can time. Can we go to Liverpool? Uh, Evan and I can go. Yeah. Oh. Do, I, do I need to authorize it with your bosses somewhere? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'd love to see you over there. We'd love to see you. Uh, we'd love it. Thank you. Pleasure. Peter Moore, you talk about a cool guy. I love the way that he was talking about we're the Johnny-come-latelys as the United States on a, a global platform for our sports. And, of course, they've been doing it for years, and Peter Moore was very good at what he does. Uh, he knows what to do. I'm not sure if that takeaway is my takeaway. I mean, the NBA you? has been in China for 30, 40 years now. Well, I'm They're sorry. So, so when has uh, – no, hockey has been uh, outside of Russia. When has you seen a global platform for that? For hockey? They're yeah. trying China as well. That's what I'm saying. Trying China. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. like, I, I get the Well, NBA the sport is- of soccer is already in China. It's popular in China. I mean, hockey is not. We're trying to get baseball expanded. 
You know, it's it's going to happen, man. We will win. Yeah, I, I think I, I I like the part where he talked about, um, you know, the way the revenue is shared differently. It's a totally different model over there than it is here, right? We have a lot of parity yeah. in all of our leagues because we have salary caps and revenue sharing, and English we soccer has none of that. Yes, we do. No, we don't. Compared to English soccer, we ah, absolutely have we don't parity. Have, we don't have parity. You know that the there is, Patriots are going to win no, every no, year. No, no. There is there are, you got a handful of no, baseball teams going to win every no year. There are no other. How many no basketball European teams soccer? have won in the last 25, 30 years? You're Five? Not, How yeah, many NBA it. champions have there been in the last 30 years? Five? You cannot argue that NBA parity is anything below There's what no you NBA see. Parody. No, there is absolutely NBA parity. Let me finish my point. So we, every year we go and we know who's going to win the NBA or be in the finals. Every English year. soccer has six teams, and outside of Leicester, they're really the only. Six I would say there's fewer a, than six in the NBA that have a legitimate shot at winning. That's not. That's not true. But the, that's what the last thirty years has shown me. That, 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 that is there. Can't you pick who's going to be in the NBA championship to next argue year and last that there year is less parity in the NBA oh, than in English good. soccer is is an idiotic <laughs> point to argue. There's no parity <laughs> in the NBA. The NBA has a salary cap. It so? has revenue sharing. Whoa, whoa, the NBA has a soft salary cap. Makes a big difference. Hard cap, Significantly cap different. different than no salary cap, like you see in English soccer. So you're telling me there's a correlation between the cap and the parity, whereas the most dominant team franchise in all of team sports exists in the sport that has the hard cap. Wait, say that again? The New England Patriots. <laughs> they win every year, and there's a hard salary cap. They don't win every year. Just about. They, they have done very well, for yes, sure. Yes, they have. You, you, you're saying that salary cap doesn't matter for parity? I'm saying not as much as perhaps you think it does. Oh, man. If you okay. figure out the better way, which they have. English soccer, both in the way they divvy up their revenue and the fact that the richest teams are allowed to spend significantly more money than yeah, the poorest teams. Yeah, but you get the same teams, six teams every year. Yeah, creates a, 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 six team? a different yes. business model than we have in any league I'm here not, in the not U.S. Not lying there, but the fact yeah. is I still have a pretty good chance. If, if I'm picking out of a hat, if I don't get one of six teams in the EPL, I ain't winning outside of Leicester. Like, okay, how about, how about we should create a bet here, actually. You okay. give me the big six uh -huh. for the EPL this year. Uh -huh. I'll give you your pick of six NBA teams to win the title. Okay, and we'll put some we'll put some money on on uh, who we think is more is, is okay. more confident I'll hold in their the winner. Money. Yeah, okay. I'll no, hold no, the money, no. Brian. That's the one thing Evan and I will now agree on right now. You will not <laughs> <Yeah>. hold the money. <laughs> Number of the week: twenty five hundred dollars. Twenty five. $2,500. Did I send you this or no? You, found you did send own. me this. God, I keep forgetting the things I send you. <clears throat> Don't know. I have no idea. It's relevant for within the week. Let's put it that way. Relevant within the week. Okay, your turn to tell us. <laughs> That's not how you, the clues are not helping. All right. I, and I said dollars now. We heard the dollars. Mariano Rivera. Yeah. The greatest closer flat out. In the history of Major League Baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Signed with the Yankees. Still not still don't know. Oh, that's what he signed. Signed for. with the Yankees and what well, a bonus. The bonus was twenty five hundred dollars. Ah, okay. Which is amazing. So way back when. Way back when career. in nineteen ninety. Same year as Brian Taylor? It might be. Because I remember that was the dominant signing for the Yankees when they paid the high school lefty like yeah. a million plus, I, whatever it was. I he think was you're a, right. Do you even know who Brian Taylor yeah, was? Yeah, he was an yeah. early draft pick, right? Like Oh, top, yeah, yeah. Top, top, five, top, yeah. top pick, left-handed high school kid who just got mega dollars from the Yankees. And as we know, Brian Taylor never pitched a single pitch right. in the bigs. Hurt his shoulder and that was it. But, I mean, just well, remember when in 1990 when Mariano Rivera came here, he didn't know English. He just he came over and and 
which I always wonder why $2,500. Didn't anybody see right away that this guy was the best ever? No, because you got to remember, he didn't become Mariano Rivera that we're, we know now till after he hurt his shoulder. He, ha- he had the surgery. Uh, his, was it elbow or, or was it Tommy John? But he had significant, I, I think it was Tommy John, had the surgery and developed the cut fastball. Like he was a starter. Mariano was a starter. And when you have basically one pitch, you can't be a starter. <laughs> yeah, that's but true. you know what? When they figure it out and you say, you know, maybe that one pitch works out of the where he can really crank it for three batters. There you go. Yeah, just, just to be, Sometimes you back into things. Yeah, well, like me. You know, too often. Too often. Yeah, too often. <laughs> Bar has one pitch. <laughs> yeah, here's the one pitch. Here it comes. Here comes the voice. Here it comes. This has been the Bloomberg <laughs> Business of Sports. We're here for you each and every week. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You can follow me at Novi underscore Williams. And you can follow me at Sashnik. We are here every week at this time and catch our podcast Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. 